I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Our guest this time is Glenn Thrush of the New York Times, where he came to work to cover the campaign and is now the White House correspondent. Glenn is a Brooklyn guy. He grew up there, went to Brooklyn College, worked at Newsday. Then he came to Politico, where he really made a name for himself covering politics, and from there, Times hired him. Glenn, welcome, and here you are at the Times already you have achieved something that it takes many reporters years to accomplish, and some never accomplish it, and that is that you have already been parodied on Saturday Night Live. I mean, what what now? What else can you do? Uh, the, the sweet, uh, warm embrace of death, perhaps? No. <laughs> I'll tell you, for a brief shining moment, and I mean 15 solid minutes, my kids thought I was cool. That's all that matters, And right? one of them, actually, the f- funny story is... This doesn't. I will not name their school because this might get their principal in trouble. But their principal showed up at their classroom the, the Monday after this happened on a Saturday, with a very stern look on his face, and he pulled them out of their English class. And they thought they were in trouble because they're my kids, so there would have been good reason for them to be in trouble. <laughs> and he was. He pulled them out in the hallway, and he gave them a hug, and he said, "This is so cool." So for for a, a very short period of time, I was the man. All right, let's get right to the news here, and that is, what's going on with Donald Trump? All of a sudden, we're seeing, is this the Bush administration that's evolved out of of the the Trump Trump administration? Well, look, I I got a lot of things wrong (laughs) during the campaign, as a lot of people did, but I will will raise my hand and say, I particularly got a lot of things wrong. Uh, I didn't think, you know, I thought he had a 42, 43% ceiling. Nationally, I didn't turn out to be that wrong. One thing I did get right, uh, and that was early on, my sense was that this was a guy who was going to be much more in the form of a late 19th century president because of his lack of institutional knowledge of Washington, his complete novitiate status uh, with the legislature, not understanding procedure, not understanding how West Wing ran, and not really having the intellectual curiosity or historical grounding to see the mistakes others had made. So I think what's going on quite naturally is you had a group of kind of boisterous revolutionaries who jumped into the West Wing. Uh, I'm reminded of that great scene from Lawrence of Arabia when the Bedouin get into, I think it's Damascus, and they just kind of tear up the room, right? Well, we're beyond that stage, and it turns out you have to run a White House. And, And Bob, you know this better than anybody else. Presidents are big. They're important. We have a personality-based political system. But presidencies define presidents, not the other way around. And that's what's happening right now. So where do you see this going? And does this last? Because we've actually seen some things that, you know, I happen to think he did the right thing uh, with the bombing in Syria. I I think that's, you know, what happens next, I think, is, is the most important thing. But to see him now talking about, well, we probably need the export-import bank, uh, right. talking about we need China's help 
on North Korea. Is this going to be where it goes from here, or will next week it'll be something entirely different? No, no, I think it's moving towards what you're discussing. Again, for the very simple reason that the problems haven't changed. Just because we've had this internal squabble in this country, this this wrenching national kind of Donnybrook here, doesn't mean the external factors that created this uh, have changed. We're still facing the same fact set that we faced before Donald Trump became president. We have an ascendant, perhaps wobbly China, with an uncertain view of itself, both sort of economically and militarily in that part of the world. We have a rogue state in North Korea that nobody knows what the hell to do with. And we have a set of problems economic problems that actually have to be dealt with in a concrete way. And I think as we move from the campaign part of this into the problem-solving part of this, the options narrow. Now, you talk about Syria. I obviously am paid not to have an opinion on this stuff, but I will say this. I think there's a 95% probability that Barack Obama would have done exactly the same thing. Because remember, this isn't a red line situation. Barack Obama had to deal with these guys that the sarin gas was going to be put on a ship and floated out into the Mediterranean. They violated that compact. So I think it's almost certain that the Obama folks would have done the same thing. And and Bob, I think you're 100% right. I think what's going on right now is, and I hate to use this word, but the normalization of the Trump White House. So who are the most influential advisors right now? We, we heard a lot of different names in the beginning, even when the inauguration happened and the argument over how large the crowd was and all of that. Things have changed there. I mean, obviously, people who are influencing this president are not necessarily the same people who were influencing him, number one, during the campaign, and certainly not in the early weeks of the administration. Steve Bannon is a guy who wanted to drive the sports car of the presidency. Steve Bannon, as it turns out, was a guy who didn't know how to drive the sports car. Apparently a Lamborghini, I've never been in one, but a Lamborghini is a very difficult car to drive. <laughs> and it turns out just because you can make it go vroom vroom <laughs> in the driveway, it doesn't mean you can race it out on the course. And Bannon, by his own admission, doesn't know a thing about the legislative process. He wrote a couple of executive orders that were poorly drafted, including the second one, that were not court-proofed not thought through. And I believe Bannon and that cluster of people who are now, uh, by the way, abandoning him as quickly as they possibly can. He's becoming increasingly isolated. I believe that, you know, Bannon simply didn't understand how government worked. And when you put a guy in the driver's seat who doesn't know how to operate the basic mechanism of government, you're going to have trouble. And I think Trump is now realizing through the agency of his family. It's very funny. We talk about Jared Kushner, his son-in-law who's in the White House, and his daughter Ivanka who just took an office in the East Wing as being sort of sui generis in terms of the role that they're going to play. Actually, I think they are playing a very traditional familial role here, keeping the guy from getting too far off the rails and pointing out which advisors are helping him and are hurting him. I think it's a natural progression. Donald Trump is a guy, you know, for all of his individuality, singularity, is somebody who doesn't like to be embarrassed and he doesn't like to lose. And at the moment, with this particular group of people that he has, he's been losing a lot and he doesn't like that. So does Bannon go away? There's a calculation to be made here. Um, Steve Bannon isn't just Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon is the former head of Breitbart. Breitbart is essentially a wholly owned subsidiary of the Mercer family, a very wealthy and influential conservative donor group. Rebecca Mercer, he's particularly close to Bannon is. So what's going on right now is you're starting to see the Breitbart crowd, 
the conservative donor crowd starting to judge Trump based on the campaign promises that he made. So all of these various flip-flops and iterations that you've discussed in, and we've discussed in terms of him normalizing his White House are uh, apostasy to these people. So you're starting to see the gap open up between Bannonism and the evolving Trumpism. So the question that you have to ask yourself here is, is having Steve Bannon inside better or worse for Donald Trump? And I think the logical play here would be to keep him cornered but empowered to some degree so he's not outside. But what I've been hearing from my conversations over the last couple of days is Donald Trump doesn't give a damn. If he wants you out, you're going to be out. Well, and he always said Donald Trump can't be bought right. by Rebecca Mercer or anybody else. Right. True. Absolutely. His brand is important to him. And he doesn't like the fact – you know, I wrote a story probably a month, month and a half ago at the CPEC, an analysis piece about how Trump gave a speech day before Bannon had basically written the script for that speech. I have heard through the grapevine, I wrote it that way, that you know Bannon wrote the speech and Trump delivered it. I was told through a couple of intermediaries that Trump liked this notion that Bannon is being perceived as a master of a puppet. Well, I base this on nothing but seeing a lot of Godfather movies. But <laughs> uh, my sense of it is uh, my money is on the family. Yes. And I think no matter how influential Bannon has been, and I think what you're saying about keeping him over there, that's the old famous Lyndon Johnson thing about J. Edgar Hoover. I'd rather have him inside the tent. Doing a certain out, function. Right. <laughs> than outside the tent. Right, right. Uh, aimed, aimed at us. <laughs> right. And my sense is that would, that would certainly be the smart way if I were trying to figure out what to do with this problem. That's, that right. would be the way that... Uh, that I would go about it. But um, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for anybody to to penetrate that family circle. This, to me, is a mom-and-pop grocery store multiplied by a factor of 100 right. or something. And that's the way Trump has always run his business, it seems to me. It's the closely held family business. The family makes the decisions. And I think it's going to be very difficult for anybody. Uh, to penetrate that, especially if things are not going well. Well, that's the great paradox of this, right? There's kind of a triple-headed issue here. The first is you have a guy in Trump. And by the way, for all this talk of personnel, I'm sometimes – I love writing behind-the-curtain stories. I've probably made my career writing these behind-the-curtain stories that Washington laps up, right? But it always gets down – and you know this very well in, in, in the course of your work – it's ultimately everyone is iterative of the president himself. And I think it is especially true with Trump. We can talk about Bannon and Ivanka and Jared, but Trump really is sitting in that Oval I mean, you walk into the Oval Office, it's totally a throwback. you got papers on the desk. I seem to remember a candy wrapper on the floor. It's definitely lived in. And the man who's sitting in the middle of this thing is Trump. I don't think it's just – I don't think it's reality TV command. I think he really is sitting there making decisions. But the paradox is he doesn't understand the system. And he doesn't have – uh, that level of uh, of trained, savvy staff that allows him to connect to the system. It's almost like an adapter when you're traveling abroad. You can have the best appliances. You can have a great computer. But if you don't have that little $3 adapter that plugs you into the, into the juice, you're screwed. And I think Trump fully at the moment, with the exception of three or four people, uh, I'll throw a name out there that people don't know. Mark Short is legislative affairs director, is one of the few people who really understands the connection. I think ultimately Trump is going to be beholden to that layer of people he will have to hire by necessity. So you have that element. You have a guy who needs 
and feels like he is command. I mean, for God's sakes, yesterday he called it his military. <laughs> Pretty fundamental misunderstanding. Well, the United a- States LBJ said, son, they're all my helicopters. <laughs> yeah. His famous answers. Well, let's <laughs> see how that worked out for LBJ. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you got, so you have this thing. You have the family that is sort of, we've yet to determine what position they're going to play. But I will tell you, in general, I do not consider that to be in a sophisticated policy operation. And it's less ideological, I think, than people realize. But again, it gets back to my notion, and this is a bit of my hobby horses. I think Trump is pushing us back into, again, the late 19th century uh, Republican uh, sort of presidency. Now, he, he has a facade. He has got a Teddy Roosevelt facade of energetic action and dominance. But in fact, everything, including those executive orders, by the way, which we've uh, – the two executive orders on immigration – Everything has been written by people on the Hill. He outsourced those executive orders to Bob Goodlatte's office and made them sign confidentiality agreements. So we're dealing with a, that great he paradox. He did what now? Yeah, he did. I mean, this has been reported. But the, exe- the original draft of the executive order on the migrant ban was drafted by Congressman Bob Goodlatte of Virginia's yeah, office. Sure. And he made the staffers who worked on that during the transition sign, sign confidentiality agreements. Oh, but he didn't make Goodlatte sign a confidentiality. No. no, I don't think you can do that with a member of Congress. <laughs> well, I'd like to see somebody try. That, that's that's yeah. a, that's a <laughs> if great anyone's going to try, it might be this president. It might be this president. Yeah, Andrew. Sure. Well, thank you, Bob. Here. Well, Glenn, you've been in the Oval Office recently, interviewing with um, your partner in crime, Maggie Haberman. Explain the scene that you saw there. I know you reported on it, but what, what you just talked about a candy wrapper, and I know <laughs> President drinks a lot of Diet Coke, and he, but he seems like he's in command when he's in there. But and how many people were in there? Well, that's, that's, that to me is the amazing thing. So let me just contrast this with, you know, a visit to the Oval Office with Barack Obama was a real occasion. I mean, and you've, mm-hmm. you've literally felt that, it, you know, the Oval under Obama had the feel and cleanliness of a pharmaceutical laboratory. I mean, there were, you couldn't find a dust moat in the place. And everyone seemed to be standing in their assigned places. And, and there was a binder for everything, right? So I did a, an interview with Obama January before last, when I was at Politico, and it was intensely managed. But there were four or five people in there, and, and one of them was a public relations guy, Eric Schultz, and the rest were technical support people. The doors were closed. It was I was knee to knee with the president. Very very clipped, clean, uh, circumscribed environment. Let me contrast that to last Thursday when I was sitting in the Oval Office. First of all, the president, the way he has the office arranged, and the geography of the Oval Office tells you a lot about the presidency. Around the Resolute desk, the main desk the president uh, uses, is a semicircle of four chairs. And those four chairs represent whoever is in power. Essentially, it's it's a great visual, and both doors to the Oval Office are open all the time, and people are wandering in, and I swear to God, they're wandering in and out, like it was the lobby of a hotel. So Maggie and I, my partner in crime, Maggie Haberman and I, are sitting in the two central chairs. To my left is Gary Cohn, who is on the ascent, the National Economic Council Chairman, Hope Hicks, who people, uh, she's sort of known as the silent press person uh, for Trump, but in fact, she's an enormously powerful figure within the White House. And then there's another aide sitting in another chair that gets pulled up. And there are four or five people wandering around the periphery of my vision. And then halfway through this interview, Mike Pence and Ryan Priebus wander in and are just standing around, arms crossed, like, I don't know, serving as notaries, like witnessing. Well, do you suppose this? they had just found out about no it? No idea. Or? And and the president yells out, hey, Mike. Hey, Ryan. 
<laughs> grab a soda. You know, like pull it. Like <laughs> it felt like we were. You know. You must have felt like Prime Minister Abe. Yeah, it was like <laughs> when he, he had, thought he was having a private dinner with the no, president no. down at Mar-a-Lago, and people were running up getting selfies. And then, well, they're in the restaurant. Then, in the middle of this interview, um, which was allegedly about infrastructure, so we go in, and you know, you know how this stuff is. Hope Hicks, but and again, I would like to just emphasize the respect I have for Hope Hicks, who I think doesn't really get the uh, props that she deserves. I think she is one of the more uh, disciplined, on message, uh, in control of people in the White House. People need to understand. People that. seem to really like her. She is. I think I'm very. I've been very, very uh, impressed by her. Um, so she had a piece of paper and she wanted us to talk about infrastructure. We sit down. I kid you not. Boom! He hits on it's Susan Rice. Nailing Susan Rice on all the – he clearly wanted to talk about it. I, this was not planned. I look over at Hope, and she's, like, shrugging. And at some point in time, as Trump is going on, Hope turns to us and says, can we start talking about infrastructure? And I'm like, I want to talk about it. i got 10 questions on infrastructure. <laughs> and then Maggie also happens to be my best friend, which is a unique uh, situation. Good for me. Has had a long relationship with, with Trump. She covered the campaign microscopically for the Times, but she also has like a two-decade relationship with Trump in his orbit from having covered New York for the tabloids. And so her and Trump have have this uh, long-standing relationship. And I asked Trump, we were talking about infrastructure. I was asking him these questions about when was the last time he took the subway in New York. He gave a great answer about riding between the cars and how his father would get angry at him. But then I asked him, I want to know when was the last time you drove a car? And in, right in the middle of that, he just takes off and starts attacking Maggie about some story she, she'd written. And I said to him, like, what does that have to do with cars? And he turns to me and he says, like, totally unaffected. He's like, oh, this is therapy for me yelling at her. It's incredible. <laughs> and, and you want to talk about – so I wanted to ask you about this. This isn't exactly access journalism. I mean, this is – you're in there and – you and Maggie haven't uh, pulled any punches no. when it's come to reporting right. with right. Trump. I mean, right. you you tell it like it is. You right. call it like you see it. He's called your newspaper the failing New York Times, but he seems to have a therapeutic relationship with Maggie right. and, a, and, a, and a good relationship with you. So wh- what does this all tell you about this president? I'm from New York. I'm a tabloid. I come out of the tabloid environment. This is no different. This is a... I've said this before, and I said this at the panel uh, the other day at the museum, is like this is much more of a national mayoralty to me than it is a presidency, right? I want to give Trump credit for this, okay? We get perceived as hammering the hell out of him on this. I think this speaks very highly to him, uh, this sense that he does engage his adversaries. He says terrible things about us, calls us enemies of the people, but his actions, as you pointed out, belie that. He is actually very dependent on the media and has empowered us tremendously. Even by attacking us, he has empowered us. I mean, for God's sakes, I walk to the briefing every day, and there are two people there every single day in the briefing who are holding signs saying, God bless the New York Times and God bless the Washington Post. I, I, I am not used to that. Right. It make, it creeps me out. It's like, get who, out of there. Who does that? I, I don't know. Get a, you know, Go get lunch. You mean people outside people the White outside House the are thing. holding up. And if you look at his... Um, his first presidential press conference, which really threw the Washington establishment over. I mean, people went. I was sitting in the office at the Times watching. It was very interesting to watch. And I'm not in any way criticizing my colleagues. But people who have covered the presidency for a long time were aghast at him sort of picking fights and calling on people randomly. 
Maggie and I were sitting there, and it was like an Ed Koch or Rudy Giuliani press mm-hmm. conference. Mm-hmm. He wasn't, Obama had four, five, six names of people he was going to call on. You'd ask him a 30-second question, he'd give you a 10-minute answer, much like I'm doing now. And uh, Trump is just free, sure, he's an insult comic, and he yells at people, but he allows the back and forth. I think, from my perspective, uh, he get, he deserves an enormous amount of credit for that, and that is an improvement over the previous administration. I want to ask you about this, because... Uh, Following up on just what you're talking about, his relationship with the press, he and others in the administration do talk to reporters. Unlike, uh, I can remember a lot of White Houses where if you didn't get it through the the press office and they didn't set it up, they just didn't talk to you. But, you know, I read uh, your competitor, the Washington Post, (laughs) They seem to delight in pointing out how many people. Politic- uh, 21 you know, sources 21 we talk sources, to. I want to give a plug sources. for my, my old uh, publication, Politico. Uh, you guys do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you are talking to a lot of people. It's it's. I'd like to call it a leaky bucket, but that would imply that it was a bucket. I mean, <laughs> More like a fire? Hose. Yeah, more like, yeah, what bucket? It's like a puddle. They seem to understand, <laughs> um, and I think this comes from the top, yeah. that the media is exciting right now. The news is exciting. Yeah. Some people even say, you know, news is the new rock and roll. There's no rock and roll anymore. This is this is what people in America are into. Didn't they know? used to say Washington was Hollywood for ugly people? Sure. Yeah. I believe that one to be more true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there is some exceptions. There, are, yeah. there is a Bob Schieffer, for instance. You know, there's the front row at the briefing. In the briefing room. Let me uh, let, let yeah. me talk about something really sure. serious, and that is this whole this whole thing with the Russians. I mean. Uh, a story again yesterday. Now it was MI5 or somebody who first tipped the CIA. Which to, ties into the dossier story. And well. ties yeah. very much into the dossier story. Where do you see this thing going and how serious do you think this is? I think it is, I think it's enormously serious. Um, I don't know, and I don't know where it's going. I mean, there's, it is entirely possible that all of this is just weird as opposed to being deeply nefarious or planned out. It is one, let's just talk about the known knowns, to, to quote a former defense secretary. Um, what we know is Russia clearly wanted to influence the election and was using whatever avenues they could. That is a known known. The second known known, and this is, I think, an aspect of this that people haven't really uh, understood, the financial crisis 2008 and 2009 froze up credit in the United States. If you were in the real estate business in New York City during that period of time and you needed investment, there were two places to go, the Chinese and the Russians. The Chinese because they're printing their own money and the Russians because they make their money off of resources, which were somewhat insulated by that, by the, uh, by the crash, though not entirely. And the Russians, when commodities prices uh, cratered, wanted to throw all their money into London and New York real estate. So that was where the money And Florida. Is. And Florida, that's right, of course. So you have Russians from a political perspective, from Putin on down, uh, attempting to influence elections all over. Second, you have Russian and Chinese money sloshing around. Third, you have this entire group of characters that Trump surrounds himself with, the second ring of people who are what we used to call in Yiddish machers, people who wanted to make big business, right? And big time people who wanted to make business, Paul Manafort. So these are the three things that we know. That is a very volatile set of circumstances. The, the larger question here, obviously, is what did Trump know and when did he know it? 
And that is why this sort of barrage of verbal flack that he throws up is to me an interesting tactical move and ultimately will be unsuccessful. He can say whatever he wants, but sooner or later, the question is going to come down with, who did Donald Trump talk to? What did they tell him? What was he aware of? I think we're going to, as the story moves forward, as we cycle through these congressional investigations, it will inevitably, and Bob knows this better than anybody else having lived through the Watergate situation and the Iran-Contra situation, these things always funnel down to one vanishing point, and that is what did the president know. So what I find very interesting about all this is, is the sums of money. I mean, we're learning now uh, some of these recent stories. When Manafort leaves the administration, suddenly he's making uh, loans or getting loans for multi-millions of dollars. These are not the kinds of loans that individuals we normally associate with. These are the kinds of loans that companies and businesses and countries uh, make and loan. Uh, And he got a $10 million loan. We don't know how much of that was actually executed, but he got a $10 million contract in 2005 from a Russian billionaire in order to promote Russian interests in the United States. And a few days prior to Mike McIntyre's excellent story in our paper, I reported, I I came into possession of these memos uh, of how Manafort pitched himself to Trump. And one um, one of the main selling points was that he was going to do it for free. That he worked but for why did he find? Why did he pitch himself to Trump? That's we the don't other know. Part. The, the best that I can discern from talking to five or six people who are friends with both is that Manafort quote wanted to get back into the game. And why did he need to pitch himself to the extent that he did buying an apartment in Trump Tower? You know, Roger Stone is their mutual <clears throat> mishpucha, if you will, family. They're friends, really close. Why did he not just go through Roger Stone like anybody else in the power elite would do? And, and I think Stone definitely played a role, and I reported this, and it's been reported. Stone played a role. question is, what role did Stone play? For me, the fascinating dynamic, and we're going to hear more about this, is Tom Barrack, who was the uh, chairman of the president's inauguration, presumably responsible for the terrible crowd size. I'm joking. Um, but but Barrack is a businessman who's known Trump for quite some time. Trump trusts him. Trump trusts him a great deal. That relationship, and Barrack, as I reported, was the intermediary, basically gave Manafort's pitch to Ivanka and Jared. And Ivanka handed physically, because as we know, Trump doesn't read stuff on the computer, printed out the emails and the memos and handed it to her father, and her father read it and then got in touch with Manafort. Why the strong pitch? Why did he have to write things? Why did he Great have question. to present him a... Great question. I wasn't able to really discern that. I think mm-hmm. now he was pitching for convention manager, but he slid he slid directly into the role of campaign manager. The moment he appeared on Donald Trump's threshold in March of 2016 was, was a very interesting moment to enter the campaign because two things were true. It, it was apparent that Trump, with just a little push, was about to get the nomination, but he was also in trouble. He was he either was about to or had just lost Wisconsin, and there was turmoil at the top. So Manafort was stepping through the door at precisely the right moment for somebody like him. Things were generally moving in the right direction. There was a high probability Trump would be the nominee, yet the campaign itself was imploding. I want to talk to you just a little bit about journalism, because that's one of the things we kind of focus on here. Uh, you 
you did it uh, the traditional way. You started out as a newspaper reporter on a paper newspaper, just like I did, and then then you go to Politico, uh, which is a big step. I think anybody that works at a paper and suddenly I'm not going to be at a paper anymore. Right. I'm I'm writing this stuff that that people read on their phones, and now you come to the Times, which is the uh, you know with the Washington Post or the two the big two. I call them. And I think one of the great things that's going on right now is how this has caused the times in the post. Uh, both of you make the other better. Yeah. Because you're Absolutely. there. There's no question about that. I love, and, and these are, you know, these are all my friends. I mean, at the, and I, I, I hate to keep doing this, but I'm going to throw Politico into the mix too. I think we do some yes. extraordinary. We, they. It's only yeah. been three months. Yeah. Uh, so why why did you decide to do that? I mean, why did you decide to uh, go to Politico, and then why why from Politico to the Times? Well, I'll tell you a story about going to uh, um, going from Newsday to Politico. The day I got uh, the day I was hired at Newsday, I was a Newsday delivery boy as a kid, and uh, Newsday had some of the great columnists, uh, the, the great late Jimmy Breslin, who was my yeah. hero when I was a kid. I wanted to be the Jewish Jimmy Breslin. That was my goal. Still, kind of is. I got the Jewish part down. Um, <laughs> but back in uh, 2008, I was kind of a one-man band covering Hillary Clinton. I was on the road 275 days in the course of 18, 18 months. And there was a day, it was the day of the Ohio primary, I call into my desk to my national editor, Calvin Lawrence, and I say, here's what I'm doing today. I'm going to stay behind in Cincinnati, blah, 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 blah. And he says, Glenn, it has been such a pleasure working with you. And I was like, what are you talking about? He said... You don't know? Uh, myself and five, uh, the entire five-member editorial staff of the national uh, team has been laid off. You'll be reporting to our Long Island editor. That's terrible. Really? And I had been talking with John Harris and Van High over at Politico, and Ben Smith, who's one of my best friends, was their star at the time for a long, long time. And I was always like, Newsday at that point had won 28 Pulitzer Prizes. It was my hometown paper. It was a, it was a smart tabloid. It had done some great work. Uh, and I realized at that point in time, you know, you jump, this lily pad is sinking, you jump from one lily pad to the next. And that's really been the course of my career. I've jumped from place to place. And, and the thing about Politico is Politico really was actually doing old time. It, though it was a digital platform, those no guys understood. Yeah. They were print people. That's been the trick about Politico. Well, yeah. BuzzFeed it really Vanda is. Vanda and John Harris. They're just print know. guys. And they... But but the but the real thing that had happened that I was part of that I didn't realize at the time was the tabloidization of Washington uh, political coverage, right? <clears throat> I mean that both in a positive and negative way. I, th I like to think of myself as sort of the classier end of the tabloid, uh, the tabloid spectrum. But in general, it had become a much more of a, a, an in-your-face aggressive sort of business. And, and as tabloid journalism commercially was imploding in New York, a lot of us refugees, Maggie Haberman was a New York Post reporter. And so many of the other people who are doing this right now at the highest level, Annie Carney at Politico, Tara Palmieri, are also people who are, who are tabloid refugees. So coming from – now, I had just been at Politico, and I had done everything really except clean up the place. You know, when I first came there, they wanted me to cover the White House. I said, no, I want to spend a year and a half on the Hill because you can't – it is my personal belief you cannot cover Washington without uh, covering the Hill. And if you're covering the White – it is my experience. When I covered City Hall in New York – I grew up in New York, so I had friends, relatives who were in agencies. So I always had a source of news from the outside. The key to covering these institutions is 
collecting derogatory information and presenting it to people. And the only way to do that is to come from connected institutions that are outside the core. <clears throat> so my decision at Politico was to cover Congress first, and I progressed up, and I became a White House correspondent, uh, and uh, and then started writing for the magazine. And I'd just been there seven years, and my decision to go to the Times, which was a, was a painful one for me because I love Politico and I was committed to it, um, was uh, based on the Times as an institution represents something larger than any one newspaper at this point in time. And if you were going to cover Donald Trump, considering the way that he had uh, dealt with the press, uh, you go into that battle on top of the biggest, baddest tank. And, and the New York Times, to me, under Dean uh, and under Matt Purdy uh, and under Allison Mitchell and Elizabeth Bumiller, my, my bureau chief, have a real commitment and an understanding to being, um, to being responsible, tough, but to not fall into the trap of buying the Steve Bannon opposition party nonsense. We know we define what we do. They don't define what we do. And what we do is ask questions. Right. And ask questions until we get an answer. That's and right. then when we get the answer, report that. Right. Exactly. And, you know, if we do that right, that's, that's a big deal. And that's why I've always been proud to be a reporter. And I've never been prouder than, of the profession than, than right now for all the criticism that it gets. Uh, I think uh, I think we did a pretty good job on this. I on think this so campaign. too. You know, I had a lot of people tell me they either liked or didn't like Hillary Clinton, and a lot of people told me they liked or didn't like uh, Donald Trump. But I didn't run into very many people who told me they needed more information to decide who to vote for. And to me. That is the evidence that we probably did a pretty good job. I've been say, I've been saying that for my, I couldn't agree with you more. First of all, I love reporters. Ethel, so do that, I. In the way that Ethel Merman loves show people, I just love reporters. <laughs> I said this the other day, and it was taken out of context. I'll say it again: the lowliest reporter has moral superiority over the most exalted flack. I just think like what we do, <laughs> and I love flacks. I just think what we do is 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 so fundamentally important, and I also think. That was why – so people talk about Sean Spicer a lot, right? And I don't care about Sean Spicer. I mean I care about him personally. I like the guy. I've known him for a dozen years. Um, but Sean Spicer doesn't matter. I mean those institutions matter. And, every, and you know this. Every time you walk through that gate, it's like the first time you've ever walked through that gate. I can't believe I'm going there. And to me, the thing that he did – let's put aside the fact that you fact check a Sean Spicer press conference every day and there are 10 things that are completely wrong, okay? That is true. 10 is an exaggeration, maybe three to five. Um, the main thing that he did, I thought, was a violation. It was the first time he appeared in that briefing room. It, never mind what the topic was. It was to berate the press about the, about the crowd size at the inauguration. I didn't care about that. Here's what I didn't like. You don't come into that room and yell at us without taking questions. That room is about asking questions and giving answers. You don't get to come in and yell. So when you're talking about questions being the fundamental uh, coin of the realm, I couldn't agree with you more. Is there a real golden age of journalism going on, though, right now? I mean, it seems like this presidency, this campaign, not just the New York Times, not just the Post, the Journal, 
everyone seems to be getting better. And there seems to be more of an appetite than ever before for news and information. Do you see that? Yeah, it's great. I mean, I, I think I think uh, we had sort of this horse race game change. Uh, Politico was part of that process as well. I think all of those institutions and people are evolving to deal with a much more serious situation now. But I'm really happy we're out of that horse race crap. Um, there's always going to be— It's more substantive. Well, it has to be because, the, you know— Now, mind you, covering process is covering policy. So you have to do that. But I feel we're calibrating. The stakes are just too high, and, and this is just too much of a convulsive thing. But getting back to what we were talking about before we started, where it isn't a golden age is local reporting. I mean, right. to me, that is the biggest single problem with what's going on now. Uh, and it makes our jobs more difficult because when you had really good interactive local media, that established a trust uh, between the public and, and reporters. Like – when, when you had people co coming to your neighborhood and covering something that happened and you had a real tactile one-on-one -on -one experience with people, it changes things. Now there's that huge hole there. So, so people think they see you on TV and they believe stuff that people write about you, tweet about you. They don't have a personal experience. That has always been my experience. You go out into the country, go to a Trump rally, somebody will get in your face and then you ask them two questions and they're your best friends. Anytime, what, because people then understand what your function is. You're asking questions. You have an open mind. I think when they just see this caricature of us, and I think local media, in addition to providing texture and holding local officials accountable, gives the public a real connection with reporters that they don't have. What about the technology of journalism these days and the, and the delivery systems? Do you think it makes it more accessible? Um, we have podcasts. We have briefings. We have newsletters. We have uh, blogs. We have video. Uh, you know, every news organization now is so much greater than it was when it started years ago. It has does so many more things. Look, I think podcasts is the best innovation. You know, hopefully I'll get to uh, resurrect my Politico podcast. I was going to ask that. Yeah, I really want to. We're, we're, we're working on it. I have a pretty complex day job, so that kind of messes things up. But I think this is the best. But I'm actually going to throw that question to Bob because he's got a longer time frame on this. I mean, how do you think, you know, how do you think that that change from having, uh, you know, waiting for the paper to hit the pavement at 5 a.m. versus what we have now? Well, the thing is, we have access to more information. And the the Post, the Times, they've completely overhauled themselves, uh, even more than they realize, I think, sometimes. I mean, they are now media companies, and they're multi-platform media companies, and they're finding more and more ways to reach people. But the, the part that really concerns me is, uh, you know, we have so much information now that we simply can't process it. Right. Walt Mossberg, who is just now retiring, you know, was at the Wall Street Journal for so long. He said the problem now is we have a lot more information, but the curation is 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 we just have the curation hasn't caught up with with the amount of information we have because what's a newspaper? It's it's a curated collection of news stories and and. So we're going to get there, uh, but we're just not there yet. I mean, uh, Ann Applebaum in, in The Post uh, wrote at one point talking about that Martin Luther said that the printing press was God's greatest extremist gift. I mean, that's a quote from Martin Luther. He said that. But while the printing press changed the world, we had the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation and all that, there were also 30 years of religious wars, and and as Anne Applebaum said, eventually equilibrium was reached. 
we are not there yet. We haven't reached equilibrium yet. I wonder if Trump isn't actually the mechanism for that equilibrium to be created because he has he's adopted such an extreme. Well, Kellyanne Conway, who I think is, again, personally, is somebody who I like a lot um, dealing with personally. When she she did the world a great favor by, by coining that phrase alternative facts. I mean, I think that was an immense favor. And I think Trump, by calling us enemies of the people, has done us an immense favor because I think people really had to decide which side of this battle are you on. And I think ultimately people will – because what, what, the point that you made about Trump talking with the Times is the same reason why people read the Times. You may bitch about us. You may complain. You may think we're biased. But you keep coming to us because you know intuitively what you're going to get is the truth. And I think people, regardless of what they might say or yell, they will keep coming to – and curation I think is exactly right. Uh, editorial control of the product, you can't get away from that. You as an editor or as an anchor or as a reporter are making qualitative decisions every step of the way. And the, uh, that's why this the, the old notion of uh, I think we are very much undone by kind of the – the 1950 to 1980 vision of quote-unquote objectivity, I think there was a, a, a greatest generation effect where I think reporters tended to identify themselves as completely neutral arbiters. That was never the case. It will never be the case. The best that we can do is sort of put our biases off to the side and give you the best version of what we know is the truth, and you as, as a reader need to make that judgment. Glenn Thrush, it has been a <laughs> thrill. I must say, I mean, it's, it's and it's been a whole lot of fun to talk to you. I love to talk about reporting. I love to talk about journalism, uh, and I love to talk about news. And uh, it, it's just was just one of the highlights of the year for me to have you come and, wow. and talk to us. Well, it, uh, it it was just great. Well, can I can I add the highlight of my year two years ago was uh, I don't know if you remember this. I, we were in the Louvre. Do you remember running? Yes. We, I'm, I am walking into the Louvre, exactly. and all of these tourists are taking selfies with the Mona Lisa. <laughs> and there's some guy standing next to me doing what I'm doing, taking a picture of people taking yeah. pictures of themselves. Exactly. And I say, excuse me, and it's Bob Schieffer. <laughs> it and, of course, what we did is we took a selfie. Uh, yeah, of course there we did. did. But it go. was uh, it really kind of summed up where we are. It did, totally. It, it really did. <laughs> it's great to see you again, and thanks so much. For Andrew Schwartz, this is Bob Schieffer. Thanks for listening. Is it a physical attraction? Is it sexual satisfaction? Is it long life together? Whoa, going through all kinds of weather. Is it holding each other's hands? Making all kinds of plans. Never, never saying goodbye. Never, never making each other cry. Love is all the above That's what love is Love is everything Underneath the sun That's what love is ah, All of the above 
walk in the park <laughs> Or is it kissing in the dark Is it strolling in the rain Is it joy Or is it pain If love really the answer Then what could be the question I look in the sky and I pray Love is all the above That's what love is Love is everything Underneath the sun That's what love is That's what love is. 